Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living So Bomb. Busy Living So Bomb. Busy Living Sober. It's episode 223 with Andrea and Sean, the authors of One Good Reason. Here's the picture of the book, everybody out there. Um, hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I feel like I was a little daring singing that song with someone who's an accomplished <laughs> musician. And I am just this <laughs> lonely podcaster out there. <laughs> I, uh, I sing all the time and I'm not never on key. So worry, worry not, worry oh, not. Well, thank you. Thank you. And so I love, um, I actually love your book. I read it. Um, there's some parts that definitely you're like, <sighs> you know, you're reading and you're like, wow, this is tough to read, right? I mean, it's some tough, tough stuff, especially what Sean went through over in Europe. That was a, a crazy time, huh? Yeah. Um, I was sexually abused as a teenager by my parish priest. And uh, that's what led me uh, into an addiction for 35 years. And uh, I think I believe everyone drinks and uses drugs for reasons. And uh, I think the main, I think the main way to to reach a real recovery is to face your, find your reasons and face your truth and, and do that. It's very difficult to do, as you probably know, but uh, I, I credit that with my successful recovery, and I've been in recovery for nine years. Congratulations, congratulations! And by chance, do you use the twelve steps? No, I did not. Um, I didn't wasn't even aware of them until I was doing some volunteer work with uh, in a rehab group in North Bay, Ontario. And uh, I was just sharing my story and someone asked me, what step are you on? And I'm like, I really don't know uh, what the steps are. And they laughed because right behind me on the wall, there were the steps were <laughs> laid out. There's 12 of them apparently. And uh, they, they pointed out that I must be at number 12 because I was now in the process of sharing my truth with others to try and help them. So, but that's, that's literally the, uh, that's the extent of my knowledge of the 12 steps. So there you go. So do you want to tell a little bit what it was like and what happened? And maybe you both can do that together or however you'd like to do that. So people can get a little understanding. Sure. Well, as Sean said, so our book goes through, um, a little bit of his history with what he just said about his abuse his family history and then his eventual abuse and then how that led to his 30 plus years of alcoholism. Um, it also runs a parallel story of my history with my family and um, my father is a Vietnam War vet mm -hmm. and he had PTSD and he was an alcoholic or is a recovering alcoholic now. And um, me dealing with his trauma and how it affected me and how that set me up for uh, being an enabler, not only for my dad, but also for Sean when we were in the beginning of our relationship. And then it, it kind of goes through our, the generations of us and, and how we had to work through not only his addiction when he got sober, but our, our marriage and how that worked and didn't work at times. <laughs> and what we wanted, I mean, the, the real goal of the book is to provide hope. Um, Sean is, uh, as you've alluded to, a singer in a band, uh, was, was a singer in a band called Great Big C, which is a very, very popular band up here. And it's a very 
party band. I'm talking for you now, so. You're better at it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we do it. I just talk for me. I swear to God, I'll let him talk in a second. Uh, and um, so the idea that the guy from Great Big C, this big party band, could get sober and stay sober is one that we hope people will say, well, if he can get sober and stay sober, come on, you can too. And so we wanted to provide hope and like, there's some, as you again said, there's some really horrible parts in the book, but we needed to show all of our ugly so that we can say, but we've made it through and we're here now and we're in a better spot. You gotta do the hard work to get to the better spot, but you too can do it. So we just wanted to provide some hope. I will let Sean speak now. I don't really have much to add to that other than, uh, you know, recovery is possible. And I've just learned from experience that um, when people see people successful and, uh, and know the backstory and, you know, how hard they had to work, then they're encouraged to, to do the work. And I do what I do because um, – I really don't wish addiction on anybody. Like I was stuck and my life was stuck for so long, stuck in a very dark place. And um, I feel like I got lucky. I mean, I, I'm alive. I've lost so many friends in the music business to addiction. And um, so I'm grateful. And uh, if I could spare one person what I went through, then I will. And I want to go back to the book. So I read the book and um, I was interested in the fact that you had, you know, you grew up in a really nice family, right? Your parents, and I'm speaking of Sean right now. So your parents, it was, you know, your mom and dad tried to do the best for you. You were very into your religion and going to church and you, you know, jumped right in and went to the fellowship of church and did the youth group kind of stuff. And this priest kind of took a liking to you, but you also, he was young and he was fun. So someone that's young and fun. And when you're a young and young guy, right? You want somebody that you can relate to in the church. At least I know that when I was younger, I wish that there was somebody younger there on the pulpit rather than somebody that was old. And when you got introduced to alcohol, I mean, that, that was the first time you really got introduced to alcohol was by him. Is that correct? Yeah. He poured me my first drink and, uh, you know, he was a, uh, a predator and uh, took full advantage of his position as a, a priest. Uh, we're a Catholic family, and uh, you know, in, in that day, priests were all powerful. The church was all powerful. Uh, we were, I mean, I was baptized four days old. It wasn't a decision I made. And it was as a result of centuries of indoctrination. So if you go back in time, I try to, it's hard to, people, for people to understand how this could happen. But this happens when people put their trust in people, in a divine trust, a almighty, powerful trust in human beings. And um, when organizations have that kind of power bestowed on them, you can expect predators to, to, to be there. You sh we yeah. should expect predators to be there. And faith won't save us from them. Faith won't do it. And yeah. um, because we've given them this, this omnipotent power. So it doesn't make it less painful for me, but it, it kind of it speaks to how it could happen. But part of my message is to put people open people's eyes. And it's not just churches. It happens in sports a lot, Boy Scouts, wherever there's children, mm. you can expect to find predators. And I think that it's amazing because when you were on, when you went to that speaking engagement and there was another gentleman that was speaking before you and he talked about his own story 
and how you got up there and you were like, okay, I'm, I'm just, it's all, I'm just letting it fly. I, I just got to tell my truth. And I think that every person being able to do, like, that's the strength that I think we all need to see is that ability. Cause we all keep these dark secrets and yours was rather, you know, violent. And it was very, I mean, just, I mean, your parents obviously did not put you in any of those situations because no parent goes out there. I mean, I have three children of my own. I can't even imagine putting your kid cause you put your kids in church thinking that this is the safest place in the world. And then to have that power to come that came over you that day to just say, all right, these group of strangers, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm just going to be me is huge. And um, I, for one, I thank you for doing that and having the courage to do that because so many people that are out there and maybe their story isn't that of th that violence, but somebody else, like it was the person at, at their, their coach or whoever it may be. And we all have these dark secrets that we just, they keep us sick, right? They keep us sick and we keep going and we pick up the drink. And that was the answer for how many years? How old were you in this, when you finally could? Uh, it started when I was 15. I didn't quit drinking until I was 46. Right? Well, you're nine years sober now. I'm nine years sober now and I don't even know how old I am. <laughs> I think I'm 53. So f I'm thinking 35 years-ish, you know, and. Um, yeah, yeah. Polly, Polly was, you referenced Polly. He was the, the gentleman that went up before Sean uh, and spoke his truth. And you should have seen the speech that Sean had laid out. It had nothing to do with disclosing any of it. It was, he was speaking to addicts. So it had to do with his addiction, but nothing about the core and the reason of. And so they were live tweeting it and so when when i saw that he actually disclosed that it was a revelation for me i, can't well, I learned imagine. a huge lesson paulie got up and um and just spoke his truth quite plainly and frankly and this was the biggest thing that i feared you know i was determined to keep my secret i had been sober for about a year then and uh anyway i just it, not, nothing happened to him like he didn't blow up he didn't catch fire in fact he seemed to be better off for it he seemed to be lightened by the, the experience and stronger, you know? And um, so I think when people, as I said earlier, when people see people do it, it's one thing to tell people something, but it's it's another thing to, to, to do it in front of people. Just, it's a powerful thing to witness and um, and can be life-changing. I didn't know Polly from, he was a stranger to me, but he, he opened my eyes that day and changed my life, you know? And uh, so again, it's a reason to keep, to keep doing that type of thing. Um, it's, it hurts every time a little bit, but it's helpful and it helps me too. Well, it's kind of the sense of like, you're not alone, right? You weren't alone. A hundred percent. No. And secrets are, uh, again, secrets are at the heart of a lot of addictions. And I think that, you know, they can really kill you. Secrets can kill you. And, um, there's only one way to defeat a secret and, that, and that's to tell it, to share it with people. So it's an important part of recovery. I think it's at the it's really at the the core of my recovery anyway, and everyone's is different, but I don't think I'd still be in recovery if I didn't do that work, if I wasn't actively facing truth and sharing it with people. I think that's key to my successful recovery long term. I might have been able to stay sober for a couple of three years, but if I didn't get back to the secret, I wouldn't it would still always be there. And now it now it just doesn't have power over me. Yeah, and plus, like you, you said, see, knowing that you're not alone in this journey, because you do think you're alone, right? Like when you're into it, you're, you're like, nobody 
can truly understand what I'm going through. But yet when you hear somebody get up there and disclose their truth and tell you all their ugly secrets or and, and what it did to them and their about their addiction, you're like, oh, they act, there's somebody that understands. Ah, and then that light bulb goes off. It's, it's, it's just a really powerful thing. When he does, uh, when Sean, when we could gather, uh, does these musical keynotes, he always has people coming up to him after disclosing their secrets to them and their truth and telling him their truth, which again, you can see like a physical weight being lifted off of them. It's a really powerful thing. Yeah, I saw an opportunity then and I took it and, and I like to present people with that opportunity. And they often do. It does affect people. And the, the effect, the impact is lifelong if, if you let it happen. And uh, in my case, it was super positive. And I just, I'm just, I encourage people to be, to have that strength. To, to tell them that they actually do have it. And, uh, and we're all capable. We're all, recovery, I believe, is possible for everybody. Everybody. Oh, it truly is. I've been sober for 14 years myself. And um, I do use the 12 steps. And do you, you, do you speak to a therapist? Do you work with anybody in like, do you follow any sort of program? I mean, I know you have a big, you had a lot of faith when you were younger and today, what do you use to help you? No, I don't, I don't have a therapist. Andrea's probably filled that role more <laughs> often than not, but I do have, uh, I have a, I have strong, not many friends, but some really strong, influential People here, there's a woman here, Clara Hughes, who's a Canadian Olympian, six-time Olympian medalist, who's become my friend over the years and has helped me. She's very a physical person who's been open with her battles about depression. And um, I go on very long walks with her <laughs> sometimes over the mountains. Now, by that, I mean for weeks and uh, or across the Arizona desert and put in many miles. And it's physically hard. And I've learned from her that movement is really strong medicine. And so I'm physically very active. I, I eat a lot of cake and cookies too, but I, I'm physically, I physically challenge myself that way. And uh, I also do a lot of kayaking and paddling. So outdoors has become, and physical activity has become a huge component. And um, I think the other thing that really helps me, I mean, I don't have religious belief at all anymore, but I, I have, if I have any religion, it's music. It's the kind, it's a, if, it's the spirituality that lets you that lets me deal with things that are very difficult to deal with, um, questions that don't really have answers, you know. Uh, so if I have a faith, it's in music, and the, and it's through songs and writing songs and singing them, that I I am able to to deal with my truth and and work through those difficult days that I have. So they're pretty strong weapons that I have in my arsenal, and whatever works, man, like whatever works to keep you sober. Whatever works, short of criminal activity, do it. That's my advice to anyone. Whatever you find that you can get into, you know. Yeah. That's the key because you've got to get sober. I was sober for a year before I actually did the work, you know, and got around to it. But if you don't break that cycle, if you remain drunk or stoned, you're stuck. You'll stay stuck. And, and the, you just got to unstick yourself first. You got to decide to help yourself. Well, I'm so happy you mentioned spirituality and that you find your spirituality because that's what you just described as being outside, right? That's where you find the Zen and writing because I bet was how hard was it? Because you kind of describe it in the book, but writing your first song when you were sober. I was scared. I didn't think I would, uh, you know, I, I didn't write a sober song. I wrote hundreds of them and they, none of them were sober. So I didn't know if I could do it and I didn't do it for a while. And then I 
it's almost had, a year. It was almost a year, and then you know the the dam broke. I, I had a I had this inspiration. I was you know I almost I almost didn't write that song. I almost took a drink instead. <laughs> so that song, uh, stronger was the song. It really uh, it saved me that day. You know it was a powerful thing. So I learned a lesson. I've got great respect for for songs and what they can do, like really do, practically do for for people. Well, some people say that when you write, it's like your way of giving yourself to your higher power because it's like it's actually writing it on words and it just directly goes from your head onto the piece of paper to the, whatever that higher power is above the, you and takes care of you. Do you believe that? Like that it gives you some solace? I think songs are, I think you can, there's two kinds of songs. There's songs you can write to sell records or make hits and, and for commerce. And, and there's a formula for that and it's proven over time and they're, they're great and some of them are amazing. But then there are songs that don't come from you. They're not, they come from somewhere else and you are, have to be open to receive them. And I think that, you know, we're made of more than blood and bone. We're made of something else. We're made of music and uh, we're made of love. We're, we're made of these things that are hard to quantify or describe. But the best songs, the most powerful songs, and the realest ones are the ones that speak the truth and address difficulty and give us the means to live in an uncertain world and, and deal with fear and, and, and exist in that place. It doesn't necessarily give us the answers, but it gives us the means to live there fearlessly. And these are songs that, that I am drawn to. And I, by that, I mean singers like Johnny Cash or... Bob Marley, people who, songs that say stuff, songs that really say things, you know, there's, they're not sugar-coated and they're not necessarily often hits, but they're meaningful and they're helpful. And that's what I, that's, in order to create those songs, you have to be an open, you have to let yourself be open enough to hear them because they don't come from me. No, I love that because it, it does, it's from emotion. It's raw, right? It's human. It's human. Yeah, you have to be able to feel that stuff in the moment. And that's why people, <laughs> that's, it's easier not to do that, believe yeah. me. But the better song comes from when you're able to stand in that heat for, for long enough to write. So uh, I've been lucky to be able to. That's a really good description. To do that, yeah. Stand in the heat, I like that. Well, they say in the sunlight of the spirit, right? And just being able to be able to sit there and write through the stuff that you just probably at some point you don't want to feel. We all don't want to feel like at least I don't, right? I, I don't want to feel. I, I don't want to feel scared. I don't want to feel the regret of yesterday or what had happened to me and replay these tapes in my head because it all it does is just spin and it does it makes me insane, right? There's no sanity in that whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a real power in being able to um, sit in your fear and, and sit in your uncomfortableness and then walk through it. You know, we there's a line in one of Sean's song. Um, I'm going to walk right through that fire. That's kind of the imagery that we use is walking through the fire, because once you do, you're on the other side and, and it's not comfortable and it's not easy, but it's so absolutely necessary because feeling is important as you know so tell us it. so tell us what it was like because there's so many women that are out there that have husbands that are 
you know, kind of out of control and they get to this breaking point where they're like, I'm out. I, I and I know you have two children as well. So, you know, that's a lot. And so you're carrying this huge burden and how did you do that? And you didn't use Al-Anon, which is like what people sometimes use. Yeah, no, I am. Um, it's hard because I had to make a decision and it really, it comes down to, I made a decision for me and for my kids. I had to decide that I was important enough to give Sean an ultimatum and to tell him, like, I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. I'm not going to let my kids watch you kill yourself. I'm not going to let them see that this is what they should expect from themselves or a partner. Um, I want better for them and I want better for me. So and that and getting to that point was a, was a struggle because yeah. I had written all this down in all these journals, but I had never said those words to him. And so I think the, the powerful moment came when I actually vocalized it to him and he, cause he'd never heard it. I mean, I'd said it again a thousand times in my journal. Um, so when I told him he, he knew I was deadly serious. Uh, but I, and I, cause I was, I was ready to leave. But when, when I saw that he was staying sober, that to me said, okay, this is a human being who is ready to do better. And if he can do better, I can do better. And at the, at the end of the day, I still was deeply in love with him. I just, I couldn't watch him destroy himself and us. You know, our, our marriage was already in crisis, but if he was gonna do the work, I was willing to do the work w with us. And it was horrible. I mean, the first three years of him being sober was horrible. It, he was going through starting to remember his past and we were trying to find out who we were individually and then together because we had never been sober together like that was something brand new um and it was just a matter of not giving up honestly that's what that's what it came down to and it and it all again it has to do with you have to keep yourself as as the number one person here. It, that's what was right for me. Now, if he was an abusive person or or decided that he wasn't going to get sober, I would never have stayed, you know, because that's not what was okay for me and my kids. So I think it all starts with get yourself straight and and what you need and what you want and what you're willing. How much are you willing to work for that? For me, I was willing to work really hard for it. As long as he stayed sober, I was willing to work for it. And can you go in a little bit of detail, like what sort of work did you do? So if there's some w woman out there listening yeah. or a man um, that's listening and says, how did she do it? Oh my God. We, I made this man talk and talk and talk <laughs> and talk to me. Like when he didn't want to talk anymore, I, honestly, it was like. Talk, talk, talk. That's <laughs> all we do is talk. <laughs> I want it. I just, I couldn't not bring everything up. And, but once I brought it up. Here's, here was my key. Once I brought it up, I had to be willing to let it go. You know, I couldn't just keep bringing up the same hurtful event again and again because that wasn't useful. It's like, but I want to talk about it. I want to resolve it. I want you to hear how it made me feel and how and how I dealt with it. And, you know, you may, might have been in your own little world, but this is how it hurt me. And I want, I want you to understand that. I want you to acknowledge that, you being him. Uh, and it was so much talking we did do um like i'd say one month of therapy with a couples therapist um but when that became when it became pretty clear to us that uh, he was willing to talk have that dialogue with me 
I was like, okay, this is what we can do on our own. And, you know, with, at that time we had two small kids, so it was hard to get the time to do that. But talking was our big thing. And then for me, I had to have my own space with my own friends, my girlfriends, who you know I described in, in the book as my tribe. Mm-hmm. Because they were the ones that, when, when he couldn't talk, they were the ones that listened and that lifted me up and that told me everything was going to be fine and that I am worthy and that I am good enough and and I am on the right path as long again as long as he was staying sober um and they would take care of my kids if I just needed a break or you know what I mean and then I would get to go to the gym so it was it was the physicality it was the emotional filling up with speaking to him and it was a constant every single day of doing that and making the decision when I woke up that this was the path that I was going to take today. It was it was a decision every single day to stick into this marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm tired just thinking about it now. I don't want to do that again. But it is one day to, like we can only stay sober today, right? Like I can't stay sober yesterday and I can't stay sober tomorrow and I have to stay sober today. And the change comes in because it's, everything changed, right? Like when Sean gave up his best, for me, it was my best friend. Would you call Booze your best friend? Weed your best friend? Booze for sure. Weed second best. (laughs) (laughs) But when you give it up and you change and you're like, holy, I mean, just for, I mean, holy shit, I've got these feelings. What am I going to do with them? And to be able to have that bond between you two is amazing. You were so lucky. Yeah. I, I think we really were lucky when it came down to it. I mean, uh, he could have given up. I could have given up. And I don't, I honestly, people say, well, how did you do it? And I can give you like what I just did a little bit of a detail, but I don't know. I mean, it was really, really, really hard. But at no point in time did I say, that's it, I'm out. Because he didn't give up. He didn't stop his sobriety. And so that meant everything to me. We, we lost friends. He lost his band. He didn't lose it. He walked away from a really lucrative career. Um, we moved uh, to a whole new you know, province. We lost a lot, but it didn't matter because he didn't stop being sober. That's what mattered. And my kids had their dad and I had him. Yeah. That, I came to the conclusion that that was going to, if I could deal with that problem, all the other ones would not be problems which was half true <laughs> i was but like there's still problems we have still many problems but <laughs> but i made that the priority number one and kept it there until this day and you know it's um there were big changes and it was definitely a lot of work but you know i've learned a, another valuable lesson that if something is difficult it usually means that the reward is greater and uh, again i value sobriety i value my recovery i don't like, I don't ever, ever anticipate or want or I, I would never want to fall back, you know, like mm. it's still every day. It's at the forefront of my mind. And it's, you know, it's like to quote Jason Isbell, it gets it gets easier, but it never gets easy. Uh, great line from one of his songs. It's just uh, and I don't take it for granted, but I, I honestly don't worry about it anymore. I'm fairly conf- like I feel confident in my ability to remain sober. I don't think about drinking every day. I don't, I I hardly ever think about it. It's just like, it just doesn't concern me. It's not a, it's not something I need to be hyper, uh, uh, like concerned about. It's just, it's no, I'm not that person. I'm Sean McCann, the sober guy. 
Yeah. You know, and I can be around people. Andrea still drinks all the time. I don't drink all the time. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's not it's not a trigger, like, being around it. It's just, I'm really, I'm lucky in that way. I know not everyone is. But... You know, our, our worst day with him sober is better than our best day with him not sober. Like, we had great days when he was still drinking. And our worst day with him sober is better than that. Well, I think you both, did you know that you both mentioned love? And I think that that's like really the best thing. It's that love, right? And it's something you can't, like you want to describe what love is, but it's like so hard, right? Because there's how many words and adjectives and verbs could you use, but it never really describes it. But your guys' love for each other is what I can feel even through this crazy screen that we're on. Um, and that's the strong, I mean, that's what's keeping it right. I mean, that's what it's worth. It's worth. And, you know, it must have like walking away from your career, Sean was got it. That must've been your buds. I mean, not only that, they were probably your, like as Andrea picked her peeps and her tribe, that was your tribe for how many years and just how that felt. Yeah, they were my, you know, my closest friends and allies for a long time, but we were all big drinkers. Like we, our band, uh, if you Google Great Big C and listen to the material, we were a huge band. Uh, we sold a lot of beer, you know, we were a drinking party band and a drinking party bus and the industry is like it anyway, but we were, we were at the top, like our brand was all about that. Our, every, you know, our part, we always had booze on stage, like mm -hmm. it was it was part and parcel of what we did. It was expected. There was no taboos for us to get hammered. I mean, the problem with us is we had to get hammered seven days a week. It was Saturday night every night. So it was a really difficult lifestyle. And I did my last tour with them sober on the bus, uh, naively thinking that this might affect the bus. <laughs> but it didn't. And uh, it was a hard, you know, couple of, it was 16 month tour over North America over a year and a half or so. And at the end of that, I mean, I had to get off. Like I couldn't, that was, that was, if I have a regret, it'd be like, I should probably have gotten off before that, but I didn't know. I didn't know how things would pan out. So, uh, you know, that was it. But I, you know, I'm glad I had the courage to get off then. Financially, it was a hit for sure. We did get paid a lot for what we did. And uh, I certainly don't make that kind of money now, but I, I do have, uh, I do get by. I make little bits of money here and there and I get to do what I want. And, and, and that's important. Uh, I just know the alternative is would be a would you know it's not a healthy place for me to remain. It's not an option, you know. And so priority number one, recovery. That means everything else comes secondary, including money. That's just the way it is. And I think you, uh, Sean has has said before that you know we had to walk away from from friends and stuff. Like he had friends. He had a ton of friends. <laughs> friends, right? He had a bunch of drinking. They were buddies. friends, but we drank a. We just did like they were the craziest people i mean you know it, it took me a long time to realize that there were people out there that actually were sober yeah. you know like i didn't know any sober people no one but i knew painters and poets and artists and songwriters and playwrights and novelists but haven't you found none this of them were sober. like other alcoholics have told you that they've had to literally extricate themselves from where they were in yeah, order to stay sober it's yeah. a common thing like you got to change your environment and that usually means your system of friends because they are they don't mean to be they're they just they just end up being enablers because of the way they are it's a community that you built and you're actively 
can't you know you can't remain there you can't be in that room when that place is lighting up again can't put yourself that's yeah. that's a harm's way then so it's a big it's 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 it, it hurts it, it's a loss you know uh but it's the alternative again is just too dangerous so you just have to do it well it's crazy because when you were just describing that that was like when i got sober i had to leave everything and it's really hard in the beginning it's like, wait a minute, this is how I used to do things every night. I have my bottle of wine. I go out to the bar, wait for last call, and then come home and have another bottle of wine. And I didn't even know anybody that didn't drink. And I thought that if they didn't drink, they might have horns or they definitely had to be a freak show. Like, who doesn't really drink? I mean, to be honest, I just, or would I even want to have anything in common with them? Right? Right. Yeah. Well, most people do drink, you know, and um, majority of people do do drink. And in in COVID times in Canada, anyway, they we've we've had a series of shutdowns and all kinds of issues with COVID, and we're managing it. Sometimes some days are bad, some days are good. But in the beginning, the first shutdown, they kept liquor stores open mm-hmm. as an essential service. As an essential service, and it struck me as kind of funny. And I had to ask the question to people that know and the government officials and. The government official came out and said that our, our Tony Fauci down here, her name is Dr. Tam, and she said, um, we are keeping these open as essential services because we have to focus on COVID right now. And we may not be, we may not be willing to admit this, but we have a dependency issue in this country. And if we pull the liquor stores out from under the rug right now and while COVID's happening, we're going to, our hospitals will be overrun by detox victims like people will just we wouldn't be able to sustain it and they knew it right away because the numbers were so yeah. high mm-hmm. yeah. people mm-hmm. who drink and people who over consume alcohol so high um you know but it's also in in, in and i'm not sure if it's in the states or not but in canada it's a it's a federally taxed substance alcohol and cannabis is here um so uh it's a great revenue source so the government has never been really aggressively putting warning signs on alcohol it's culturally accepted to drink and it's it's marketed it's you're allowed to advertise it but there are consequences to society and by and large it's arguable that you know when the top scientists in the country comes out and says we have a dependency issue we'll deal with that after covid though in the meantime keep drinking if you drink because we don't want you to stop now it's too it's too stressful that's pretty that says a lot to someone like me so I mean, it's interesting that you just mentioned that, Sean, because down here as well, you know, it is, um, I think more people have died from suicides, from um, domestic violence, and from alcohol-related deaths because of COVID than probably people have died of COVID. And it is, it's a huge problem. It's a huge, huge problem. So, and you, you don't rely on a meeting. So a lot of people rely on meetings. And so what if you were going to say to somebody that's in COVID, because you've been locked down, right? I don't know what how stringent they are where you are. I know in Florida, it's kind of lenient. But what do you do each day? You, somebody's listening, like that you would recommend for somebody to do each day that helps you stay kind of sane and um, not wanting to drink. I mean, luckily you've said, you've already said that you don't crave it anymore. But what, what do you do each day to like maintain like some spiritual serenity, we'll say? Every day I do something physical outdoors, even if it's crappy out, like even if the weather's bad and uncomfortable, I still do it. And I do it alone yeah. or with my, I have two dogs, not by choice, but we have two dogs. 
<laughs> but uh, and even just 30 minutes of physical activity it doesn't need to be running I run but it can be a walk but if, if you can get to nature or even just be outside by yourself even if, you, if you're in a big city then maybe listen to something some music that means something to you and give yourself that space you know and I'm, I'm not a, as far as meetings go I've been to some great one well, I've been in and out of different things again whatever works I'm not I'm completely whatever works so I've been invited to meetings um, I've been uninvited to some <laughs> but, uh, for anonymity's sake but and fair enough but some of them are like what I've learned from them is they're great support they're supportive and um, there's always a, a commonality in the different things uh, people do share their truth which I see great value in and uh, I think they also vary in ca caliber or quality so if you what I've learned, and, and from people I know who use the programs, uh, who go to meetings, and I have lots of friends who do, they find the good ones. Some are better than others. The one that They're works not the them. same. Yeah, the, they'll go out of their way. They'll drive an extra 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 minutes to go to the cool meeting, which, you know, they've got better speakers or better shares or cooler cats or whatever, you know? So I, I've learned that from people. There's, there's that. You can shop for your meetings. They're all over the place. But generally, back to my thing, it's like give yourself – it takes, I need 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, if he doesn't get it, honestly, I have to kick him outside <laughs> because it's, he needs it. Like, it, it, it is what re gives him his reset. Yeah, and it's usually, Just to interrupt you it's again. helpful to be, like, for me, it's helpful to be alone. I, I like, in the summer, I kayak. In, in the fall, I hike. I run generally whenever, in the rain, when it's raining, I like to run. So these things, it just gives me, it literally gives me 45 minutes or an hour or more just to, just it's your meditation. Able, it's a meditation, yeah. And it, I'm just helped by physical because I'm, I'm really bad at meditating. But, <laughs> but it does function that way. And uh, that's really, that's what I would advise. Give yourself that. I like, don't be on your screen. Don't, don't yeah. listen to the news. Just <laughs> yeah. zone out, listen to birds or music. So tell me this. How old are your boys? Keegan is 15 and Finnegan is uh, almost 13. Oh, what fun ages. <laughs> I mean, just heavy. Let's take a pause there and a heavy sigh for a moment. <laughs> Old enough to say no a lot. All the time. And so with those ages, and I know a lot of parents out there, and I am also had young kids at one point or teenage kids, and, you know, with them being introduced, how do you guys, do you guys talk about what it was like for you and what your relationship was with alcohol and drugs with them? And what is your how what is your perception with that and what do you teach them? Um we've been very open with our kids. We, they know everything they can understand and know. Uh, Keegan's read the book. Now. Yeah, they know everything now. So and they have a healthy uh a healthy like respect or, or they they know that alcohol is a is, is a dangerous thing because they, they know my story and you know that it's not lost on them. And at the same time you know they 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 haven't been indoctrinated to any kind of religion they don't have they have an openness of mind they accept uh general spirituality i mean we've we talk in spiritual terms all the time but they don't have a preconceived they, they've never been indoctrinated to the point in any religion where they would see any human being as having a divine power over them like they they're not burdened by that which is something i really suffered from you know it's a dangerous thing um so they, I think that they can open, they're not, they're not, uh, they can use their minds clearly, like they can examine situations and they, 
they will, and I hope, my hope is that they'll be, uh, you know, if they ever run into a predator or anything like that, they'll be able to see it clearly. They won't be clouded by that kind of stuff, you know, like, like reason rules. So, um, I'm sure we'll traumatize them in other ways, but we didn't, <laughs> we've spared them those things. And they live up, they live with a dad who's sober and they know that I'm sober for them. They know that and that and means something to them. We've been really, really honest with them, as you said. So we've also expected honesty from them. Like we have a, a very open house in terms of dialogue. No question is too scary to ask. No, you know, nothing is off the table. Uh, and as Sean said, especially now that they're older, we'll, we, we speak in very frank terms to them, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I think I, rem I remember my oldest asked me, um, did you have you ever gotten high before? And I was like, well, yeah, I used to smoke weed all the time when I was your age, as a matter of fact. And he's like, well, what's it like? And I said, I hated it because it made me so out of control and paranoid. And I, I couldn't stand that feeling. And he's, he's anxious anyway. And he's like, oh, my God, I could never do that. I can't imagine being more anxious than I am right now. <laughs> I'm like, right. So perhaps that's nothing you should try. But, I mean, it's it's stuff like that. And, and you know, full disclosure, they saw me, they've seen me have two really bad hangovers. And it was like a day in the bed. And they're like, Mom. And I'm like, I know. Do you see now? Do you see why you shouldn't do this? And, you know, I'm the one that's up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning getting all the stuff done. And so, like, when Mom's flat out, as you know, I'm sure, <laughs> if you've been sick or whatever, the world stops. <laughs> so it's really powerful lessons, and we have those really open, honest. You can't, as Sean said, secrets secrets kill, right? Like, you can't, you can't have, expect your kids to not be introduced to alcohol or, or drugs or whatever and, and not have questions. you got to be willing to go to the the hard places with them if you if you want them to have a an honest conversation with you secrets are powerful things and in the catholic faith for sure they hold great weight they're valuable the mysteries the and the even confession where i met the priest who abused me these were secret things they're all secret secret whispers, whispers. we don't do secrets in our we house don't anymore. so we don't do it it's all open it's all light it's always that way and um, that's the only way for us yeah i love that how are they doing with COVID? Um, you know, they're okay. So <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird year to be imagine, a teenager. Man. I, can't I can't imagine can't. being a young person right now. Like we thought we had it bad with the cold war and everything. Like this is nothing to, you know, that was nothing to this. So they're doing good. They're uh, both really physical in competitive sports or, or um, other things and, and very musical. So they have their outlets. And like I said, you know, if I made him talk a hundred hours a day, I'm making them talk all the time because they're boys too, so I'm all over them. <laughs> yeah, and about it, talking, talking, talking. This is one of those things. It's unprecedented for sure, and it's uh, you know, the big questions, like a lot of questions, would be like, why would this be happening, and all that. And I mean, I really believe that the key to real strength and clarity is 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 being able, have the courage, and being able to accept that you don't know the answer. Yeah that you don't really know what the outcome's going to be. And, and I know that it's really a hard thing to do. It's And, and I believe that that's what re a role religion plays. Like, be, here's the answer. We have the answer to this. And that's there's great comfort in that. And um, But, you know, this is one of those things that it's really going to be hard to explain this. So the trick is to make yourself strong enough. You know, every day I run, I be ready for these things that can and will happen in life. They will not get through life without challenges. And so my, I want them to be strong enough on their on their own two feet 
to be able to deal with that. And that's the goal. That's the best way I think a parent can prepare children is to make sure that they have the means, the tools, the strengths uh, to when they do eventually. Because like to quote Hank Williams, no one gets out of here alive. <laughs> You know, we're all going to, we're all going to. To end on a positive note. Yeah, but it, that's just the reality of it. And uh, so, but what you can do, you can't do much about that, but what you can do is is work on yourself mm. daily a little bit and be strong. It's like looking after your body to prevent a heart attack. Yeah. Be be prepared for, you know, be mentally prepared. And uh, I mean, there's going to be, again, this is a hard time and there's going to be a lot of fallout and stuff, but I'll be there to help where I can, you know. But that's the key is make sure your, your, your kids are, are ready for that reality. Don't, don't tell them it's not going to happen. Mm. That's not going to help them. Yeah. yeah. You guys, this was really awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and for your honesty, your love for each other that we can all see through here. And um, it is, it's amazing because a lot of couples don't make it through this. You know, it's a really, really tough thing. And um, I know you guys don't have Thanksgiving up there, but I hope you guys have a happy Thanksgiving or whatever you're doing for Thursday. Do you still celebrate Thanksgiving, even I though you're not? To celebrate Thanksgiving. I'm from Minnesota. I, I'm like, okay, we're doing it. Andrea's been stress baking, so I'll be stress eating. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, uh, you're a warrior. I swear you're a warrior, Sean, for being able to tell your truth. And I thank you so much because you're going to help so many people by just getting honest. And it really got amazing, amazing. And Andrea, for standing by him. And I know it isn't easy, the whole change and just learning a whole new way of life and giving up the old life that had to be, you know, I mean, being on this stage with the spotlight right on you and then walking away had to be really tough. Yeah, we're not special. We're nobody special. We're just, uh, we did the work and everyone's capable of it. I believe yeah. it. It's And recovery is something we all deserve in life. We don't, we don't deserve the darkness that comes with addiction. Everyone is worthy of recovery. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, again, we're, yes, we're lucky and we're grateful, but it's, it's within everyone's grasp. And that's the main thing to remember, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I've, I tried and failed so many times, mm -hmm. but eventually I, I'm successful because I refuse to give up. You know, you just be stubborn. Believe in yourself and you'll get it there. You'll get there. It might take a few times, but don't give up and you'll be successful. Well, you guys are awesome. And if anybody wants to find this, you can get it on Amazon, right? Yep. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. There Barnes you go. America. One good reason. One good reason. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and stay safe and healthy. And until next time, everybody, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.